1: Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with what could be, this is actually good, what could be the way out of the pandemic at long last. And the Republican governors who act like they don't ever want it to end. As our nation's healthcare system is wobbling under a continued assault by the Delta variant and in parts of the country all but collapsing, what, what has been a vaccine push is now becoming a vaccine must With more and more vaccine requirements taking effect, especially now that the Food and Drug Administration granted full approval to Pfizer's vaccine. Today, the Pentagon ordered troops to get their shots as soon as possible. Private businesses are joining in. CVS Health and Disney said they would add or expand requirements for workers. And Delta Airlines said it would raise health care premiums for workers who remain unvaccinated. Add to that, schools and universities, more than 800 are requiring students to get COVID vaccinations before returning to campus. Because the reality is the only way to blunt the pandemic is through vaccination. And the only way to stop the misinformation and the ignorance, and frankly, the selfishness of the unvaccinated from prolonging the pandemic for everyone, for the rest of us, is to stop begging and start making it mandatory. Or the truly committed anti-vaxxers, Make, could just make like COVID Jonestown and move to Florida or Texas or Freedom Stand, South Dakota, with apologies to the doctors and nurses there. Today, Texas Governor Greg Abbott rolled out a new ban on government vaccine mandates of any kind. His previous one only banned those under emergency authorization. It would seem that despite contracting COVID himself, Abbott is fine letting his citizens get infected and potentially die. Of course, his Republican partner in death, Florida's Ron DeSantis, is also pushing mask and vaccine mandate bans. And then there's South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, the roaming gnome, who's apparently not content to let Abbott and DeSantis fight for the title of most derelict COVID governor. Just over two weeks ago, she welcomed thousands of bikers to her state on a horse, no less, for the Sturgis motorcycle rally because freedom But what she, along with Abbott and DeSantis, really mean is freedom to get sick and die. South Dakota has seen a massive surge over the past two weeks. Cases there have nearly quintupled in that time. So Kristi Noem has declared war, not on the virus, no, no. But on President Biden over vaccine mandates that he hasn't even actually implemented. She tweeted that she would take every action available under the law to protect South Dakotans from the federal government. Now, wait, does that mean that South Dakotans shouldn't use the highways? Indeed, Christine Noem has staked her political ambitions on being the governor of YOLO when it comes to COVID, despite a middling vaccination rate in her state. Last month, she told the Associated Press she would not step up efforts because her messaging has reached a saturation level. Okay. Joining me now is Dr. Esther Chu, professor at the Center for Policy Research and Emergency Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University, and Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large for the Bulwark and an MSNBC columnist. (laughs) I'm gonna start with you, Dr. Chu. A saturation point in messaging. I don't know what that means, but it sounds to me like the governor is saying, she's not gonna talk anymore about getting vaccinated. Do you think that that, from a medical point of view, is good public policy?
2: Well, it's really painful to hear that from where I stand because um, like in many other states, we're struggling here to just figure out who we let in next off a very long waiting list for ICU beds that are just running out. And of course, you know, across the country, last week, one in five ICUs um, were at 95% capacity. Um, This week, one in four ICU beds are at 95 capacity or greater. You know, in Florida, we're seeing ICUs that are at 200% capacity, which means nobody is getting the care that they should get in the ICU. So to go from that um, to a governor who is saying things like that, I mean, you're Neither going to continue urging people, but you're also going to remove the ability of businesses to mandate. Um, that means that you're, I mean, if you're not doing persuasion and you're not doing mandates, then you're yeah. doing nothing to encourage things like vaccination.
1: Well, that's, I think, their plan. Their plan is to do nothing. Uh, it, you know, why do you invite a, a political guy to a segment about health? Because it's all political, right? That's why we've got you here, Charlie, instead of being in one talking about 2022 or something. We have to put you in this segment because. For these governors, for, for, you know, the Texas, South Dakota, all these guys, to them, I don't get it, but I wish you would explain it to me. The good politics is let COVID run freely wild through my state and then back it up by having some pop-up clinics where people can get treated. They think that's good politics. Do you agree?
3: No. And in fact, I do think we have an inflection point now where uh, more and more people are getting disgusted by the the selfish and the stupid who are refusing to uh, to get vaccinated. Uh, You see this in the public opinion polls. Uh, You see this anecdotally. Um, and, And I agree with you. That the private companies that are mandating this will change behavior, but you know, the politics of this is awfully interesting because uh, you you have the governor of, of you, Governor Abbott in in Texas, Governor DeSantis in Florida, and Governor Nome in, in South Dakota, who are all in thinking that their handling of this is is their ticket to you know political success in twenty twenty two and twenty twenty four. Now, as bad as Christy Nome has been, I want to point out. That she said today or yesterday that she would not support banning, prohibiting private companies from requiring proof of vaccination. Which really highlights in many ways, because she's very MAGA, but that highlights how radical Ron DeSantis is. Yes. <laughs> because Ron DeSantis is out there saying that that I mean was talk about you know conservative small government uh, you know property rights, telling private companies yes. that he is going to bar them from having these policies. And then you had Governor Abbott who's mm-hmm. doubling down, banning these vaccine mandates, and Christy Noem, who's thoroughly deplorable, um is saying, No, um, that's not in my power. As governor, I may not be pushing this. I may be riding around the horse saying freedom, but I am not going to ban these vaccines, uh, these vaccine mandate, the the vaccine requirements yeah. by private companies. So that's an interesting division um, that really kind of shows
1: you what an island Ron DeSantis is on right now. A hundred percent. He's saying you, you're not a private business. I own you and you're right. going to do what I say. And that's not usually a conservative thing. Let's stay with Christine Nome just for a second. She was in South Carolina Monday and, you know, she, she's almost doing it like a hymn. My people are happy because they're free, like she's doing his eyes on the sparrow, except uh, you're going to get COVID version. Um, she's also OK, so let, let me just go back So Senator Murphy tweeted at her. Um, about the fact that South Carolina actually codified a law. It's called 13 seven point one, and it was re- revised in 2016. It requires that any pupil entering school receive immunization against All of these things, diphtheria, pertussis, measles, rubella, mumps, tetanus, meningitis, all that stuff, chickenpox, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he he tweeted that at her because she said, if Joe Biden illegally mandates vaccines, I will take every action under the law to protect South Dakota from the federal government. Dr. Chu, I mean, the reality is if these governors took the same attitude toward measles right, or, or chicken pox, as they are taking right now toward COVID, they'd be run out of office because people are like, wait, you want to let chicken pox in too? But, but some of the same people are like, let COVID in. I, it, it, is, it doesn't make sense to me, but as a physician, I just want to get your comment on it.
2: Yeah, there's a total carve up for COVID where we're pretending like this has never happened before. I mean, we all had the little yellow card to go to elementary school, right? Yeah, Um, you know, where you had all your vaccinations stepped up. Um, All of us who have traveled out of the country without question, we get vaccines that are required. And we understand that's part of the social contract that you get to go to these places and get your education and get to live your life if you just demonstrate that you're not going to harm other people. And so these are not new or different. It is the newest disease and it's being plugged into the same old process from a public health standpoint, um, making COVID something um, that is really um, Um, you know, we're kind of making it this exotic thing when actually we need to just behave the way that we do for any other infectious disease. And of course, the reason we are all around with the lifespans we have, um, the reason we have grandparents um, who do not have polio, the reason all of us are here is because of the massive improvements in life expectancy and quality of life um, from all of these vaccines. And the same goes for COVID, just more acutely.
1: And you're absolutely right. I mean, this is not like polio. This is not an ancient thing. I mean, Mitch McConnell had no. polio as a child. You know, it, what is going to happen? I mean, by the way, South Dakota, um, the number one state in terms of who has vaccine, who's vaccinated is Vermont. Obviously, you know, New England is doing mm. great. Massachusetts, Connecticut. They're in the middle. They're at a 48 percent vaccination rate. That ain't good. Right. That's not a way to stop this disease from 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 killing people. What do you think the politics are going to look like when you start seeing the military require it? When you're saying universities require it, when the mandates start coming in, because you're just going to have to adjust I and mean, you can't touch the federal right. mandates. They're going to be there. So is the new politics going to be for people like Noam and DeSantis, that the way they're going to try to turn around is just what, run against the military? Are they going to say the military is a no. Marxist institution? I, I, what is going to be their play when it has to be done to get on a plane or to go into any federal building?
3: Well, they're going to play that that card that somehow this is an infringement on freedom. But, you know, this point can't be stressed too strongly that we have had immunization requirements for years. In fact, you know, these folks run around with the don't tread on me flag and talk about 1776. You know who imposed one of the first vaccine mandates in American history? George Washington, (laughs) who required, you know, members of the uh, of the the Continental Army uh, to be vaccinated. And so this is not a new thing. There's a long history of this. There's no question about the legality of all of this. And also, it really is a, a degradation of, of the slogan of, of freedom, because we have always understood that, you know, I, you know, I am free to swing my arm until it hits your nose. Well, uh, th- this is, you know, I we've always balanced um, we've always balanced freedom. With responsibility. We have rights, but we have responsibilities to the community as well. And I think this is showing up in the polls. There was a, the Quinnipiac poll showing that Ron DeSantis' position on masks is rejected by very strong majorities of voters. And I do think that people, there, there's there's a, a stream of common sense out there, which is reassuring for those of us that sometimes are <laughs> tempted to think that Twitter is real life, that people understand that, look, um, being vaccinated is not a radical thing. It is something that the that our children have been doing for years to be able to go to school. It's something that Americans have been doing. They understand it's part of the American historical legacy. And so I, I think that they've miscalculated. They're playing to base tribal politics. But I think the vast majority of Americans are looking at this and going, you know what? If my kid can't go to school or my kid is put at risk and my neighbors are dying, this is just stupid. This is stupid, reckless, and it's invincible ignorance." on the part of these governors who put demagoguery over the lives of their constituents.
1: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, I, I had to FedEx up, have, have my vaccine records for my kids FedEx up so they could enter into New York schools. You know where they lived sure. before that? Florida, which is one of the strictest states. You cannot walk, into a, walk your kid into an elementary school in Florida unless they are fully vaccinated and you can prove it. I'm going to give you the last word on this, Dr. Chu. In the end is what saves us from this nightmare, mandates. Don't make it optional. If you don't like it, then just stay home. It's mandated. Isn't that going to be the answer in the end?
2: I do think they're going to play a major role, I think, especially paired with FDA approval. I will say there are chunks of this country, and of course globally, where it is not just an issue of people who have full access and information refusing to get it. I still think we have a lot of work to do in people who do not have access to care and have not had equitable access to good medical information from trusted sources. So, um, you know, I think on the medical side, we're really focusing on people who, for whom the mandate is not the issue. It really is equitable access. And then after that, of course, chipping away at those um, who are just putting their foot down and saying, I just refuse to get it um, because of the political rhetoric. And um, and I think that's where we need to compel people with mandates. None of us on the healthcare or public health end love mandates. We don't want to go to that. It's just that that's where we are with Delta. And, you know, of course we're anticipating just the next, variant, because the longer this goes on, the more the variants are going to emerge. I'm sure we're going to be here talking about, you know, Lambda, everything, Zeta. <laughs>
1: um, and Every time someone this. says Lambda, I want to pass out because if you think Delta's bad. <laughs> apparently, Lambda makes yeah. Delta look like child's play. And these people are playing games, letting it mutate because they won't just do a simple thing like wear a little mask or get a shot. Um, it's uh, it's unbelievable But yeah, we gotta work on it And yes, if you don't have a doctor And you don't have a doctor to ask Then I have empathy for you If you're just being ideological about it When the mandates come Adjust Grow up Thank you very much, Dr. Esther Chu And Charlie Sykes Up next on The Readout The January 6th paper trail The select committee announces a sweeping request For records of Trump and his top lackeys Including all of his adult children yeah, Except for Tiffany Sorry, Tiffany Plus, the shame of the Republican Party unanimously voting against the John Lewis Voting Rights Act in the House as their Republican colleagues in Texas get ready to vote on their voter suppression bill tomorrow. And tonight's absolute worst are are learning that there are consequences to racist voter intimidation and suppression. Now, they could be hit with the biggest fine of its kind ever levied. The readout continues after this.
4: we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future.
1: And here we go. The House Select Committee is demanding materials about the Trump administration's involvement in January 6th. And Chairman Benny Thompson has set a two-week deadline for those materials to be turned over before he reports he resorts to Subpoenas. In a flurry of letters today, the committee issued sweeping document requests to eight different agencies of the executive branch. But the most significant request is to the National Archives, which now holds the records from the Trump White House. According to the committee, they're seeking materials on the administration's attempts to derail the Electoral College vote count, as well as plans for the rallies leading up to January 6th and potential plans to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. But they're also investigating the big lie, seeking information about the former president's knowledge of the election results and what he communicated to the American people about the election. They're requesting documents and communications relating to a sprawling list of subjects, a list that reads like a who's who in Trump's efforts to steal the election. People like Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, Michael Flynn and Trump's children, Eric, Ivanka and Don Jr. Not Tiffany, though. The list also includes Alex Jones of the fake news site InfoWars, who claims that he paid for the rally at the Ellipse before the insurrection. Ali Alexander, an organizer of that rally who implicated three members of Congress in the Stop the Steal effort. Roger Stone, the Trump confidant whose bodyguards were involved in the siege. And Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the Proud Boys, who was sentenced to five months in prison this week on weapons and vandalism charges, related to his ripping the Black Lives Matter sign off an historic black church in Washington, D.C. With me now is Neil Katyal, former acting U.S. Solicitor General, and Frank Figluzzi, former Assistant Director for Counterintelligence at the FBI. Thank you guys for being here. Neil, I'm going to start with you. Here's some of what the committee is requesting, and this is possible material um, related to militias and conspiracy theorists, including all documents and communications referring and relating to QAnon, The Proud Boys, Stop the Steal, Oath Keepers, The Three Percenters or concerning the I mean, all concerning the election 2020 results. But here's another thing they're requesting all documents and communications related to the mental stability of Donald Trump or his fitness for office. I will ask you first and then, Frank, what all of that says to you.
5: Well, boy, Joy, that may be a lot of documents. Um, Yeah. Look, I think this is really significant. I think it underscores the seriousness of the inquiry that the January 6th commission's looking at, um, and particularly when you view it in light of yesterday's order, which was to a bunch of telephone companies to require them to preserve all their electronic data about communications involving January 6th, including with members of Congress. And it's significant. You know, we haven't had a hearing since the police officers testified uh, about this, which was so moving. And I think they've t- the investigators have taken a pause and said, what do we now need to know and I think the most significant thing you see in today's requests is that it gets to the heart of something that you and I have both talked about in the past, a fear that Donald Trump used the Justice Department as a coup agent or tried to use it. And so we need to know what was the pressure he tried to put on the Justice Department and what was the response. Because this, these, the Trump Justice Department basically was a blank check for Donald Trump throughout his presidency. But all of a sudden, You have them finally saying, you know, finding a little bit of a spine and saying, no, gosh, how significant must of those demands have been uh, on the Justice Department for even them to say no to Donald Trump?
1: And, you know, what does it say to you um, as as an investigator, a former investigator, Frank, that they're looking for these groups? We knew the names of them, the Proud Boys, these violent groups like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters and their connections and their communications regarding 2020. And looking for that and looking for that information from the White House, what does that tell you? And also, what does it tell you that they're also looking for information on Trump's mental stability?
6: Mm. It's very interesting. As Neil said, it is the first significant sign of life we've had from the select committee following the compelling testimony of the police officers. This is a very broad records request, and I want to try to set expectations here first. Let's remember that the former president was not someone who engaged in email communications, so let's not get excited that we're going to find some smoking gun email communication. But There must be some predication here, Joy. I do not believe, and certainly if we use the model of a prosecutive entity, that they would just willy-nilly send out this kind of shotgun request without reason to believe, at least a reasonable cause to believe, that there were such communications or may have been such communications from the White House to these parties or vice versa. The National Archives is the repository of record for those White House communications, but let's also understand something here. They are the repository of record for official devices and communications. That doesn't mean that personal phones, personal computers and communications aren't being used by certain folks or in and around the White House, including members of Congress, which was part of the request, and that the archives would capture those personal communications. So I, wanted, I want to set expectations, but here's encouraging news. This sign of life is significant. The investigation is taking off They've got some reason to believe this is going to reap benefits for them. Now we watch and see the strength of this select committee. What happens if they turn to subpoenas? How long is it going to take the National Archives to respond to this massive request? Are they properly staffed? Can they do it in two weeks? I say no.
1: Well, and you guys have both been very, uh, you guys are very, you're gentlemen. So you guys didn't really touch the mental stability thing, either one of you. But I'm going to come back to you on this, Frank, because when you're talking about autocrats, in general, you talk about people who we tend to think of as, quote unquote, madmen. Right. It's sort of a, a, a kind of a way that we refer to them. But if you're asking for records related to someone's mental stability, that indicates, at least to me as a layman, that you're questioning whether there were communications about whether the president of the United States was mentally stable. That seems significant to me. Uh, and I just wonder to, to you. Does it to you?
6: Yeah, on the theory that they would not send out this kind of fishing expedition request, I believe this signals they've got some predication to believe this was discussed. And here's how it might be in proper context. I, you understand that they've requested records that indicate what the president might have been told about the actual election results, right? And, right? and he may have been warned, don't go there. These are certified results, my friend. And if he kept pushing back and making stuff up, that would be indicative, perhaps, of a diminished mental state. I think they've got some reason to believe that kind of thing was discussed.
1: Speaking of uh, mentally, mental stability and, and just, well, I shouldn't even say, make that my segue. I want to ask you about another person that's sort of, in, uh, not tangentially, but sort of involved in this as well, Sidney Powell. This is a separate thing. This is a federal judge in Michigan who sanctioned um, several pro-Trump attorneys, including Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood. Ruling that the attorney should face a range of punishments, including undergoing legal education, potentially facing disbarment, saying that their lawsuit about the election was a historic and profound abuse of the judicial process. Neil, that seems pretty strong language. Is that the kind of are we starting to now see that the consequences, at least maybe not for Trump, but for his lawyers are just going to keep getting more severe?
5: Yeah, I mean, as it says in Spinal Tap, that goes to eleven. I, you don't see federal judges talking about that to lawyers in in my experience. And as a lawyer, you know, I, I strongly support zealous advocacy. Um, I have no problem with people who you know take a client's position and you know and, and fully support it with law and facts. Um, Unfortunately, this cast of characters didn't do anything like that. They did the reverse. And, you know, when the legal profession gets a bad name, it's because of stuff like this. And so I'm glad to see the judge, you know, calling out this conduct um, because this is this this is not part of our advocacy tradition in any way, shape or form.
1: Last question. Very quickly, Frank, um, we we now know that the officer who shot Ashley Babbitt, uh, he's going to reveal his identity in an NBC News interview with our own Lester Holt. Um, This comes after he was exonerated by Capitol policing. The actions of the officer potentially saved members and staff from serious injury and possible death because you've been in a law enforcement role. I just want to know what you what you think of of this officer coming forward.
6: Yeah, real quickly, I am intrigued and slightly concerned. I, I, I am monitoring communications by violent extremists. Um, they want this guy. They want to They they want to find out who he is. Many of them already know his identity is all over extremist sites right now. I'm intrigued by why he feels now he needs to come forward and explain his actions. He's been cleared. He's been cleared by DOJ civil rights. He's been cleared by the District of Columbia investigation and now by his own internal Capitol police uh, inquiry. He was within their deadly force policy. He needs to convey that. um, And we need to hear from him as to exactly what he found to be an imminent threat to life or serious bodily harm for him or for those he was protecting.
1: We're all interested. And I believe uh, he can very easily be labeled a hero for what uh, he did trying to protect those uh, people in the Capitol that day. He did the best that he could. um, At least that's the Capitol Police found as well. Neil Katyal, Frank Figluzi, thank you both very much. Still ahead. Are you sitting down? Because this may come as a bit of a shock. Are you ready? Okay. Last night, not a single House Republican voted for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Okay, maybe it's not that big of a shock. I'm sorry, I made you sit down. You can get up and move around again. We'll be right back.
0: Hey, it's Mel Robbins
7: The right of ordinary men and women to determine their own political future lies at the heart of the American experiment. In four decades since the Voting Rights Act was first passed, we made progress toward equality, yet the work for a
1: more perfect union is never ending. That was Republican President George W. Bush proudly promoting the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Since its passage, the law has been reauthorized and amended five times with large bipartisan majorities under a Bush. Not a single Senate Republican opposed the bill and only 33 House Republicans opposed it. At that time, their opposition was viewed as an embarrassment for the Republican leadership. In the 15 years since then, Republican support for voting rights has evaporated. What was once deemed shamefully oppressive is now proudly central to the Republican Party. Yesterday, House Democrats passed legislation that would strengthen the landmark civil rights era voting law and not a single Republican voted for it. Not one. Mo Brooks, the pro insurrectionist Republican from Alabama, defended his opposition by tweeting this string of incoherent Republican trigger words. I will vote against H.R. for the John Lewis Act, because much like H.R., One, the For the People Act, it undermines America's republic. It effectively turns our election results into what we so often see in North Korea, the old Soviet Union, Venezuela, and any number of other pretend republics. He was joined by Representatives Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, Republicans who have been praised for their objection to the big lie. If passed, the John Lewis Act and the For the People Act could neutralize or block Many of the recent restrictive voting laws inspired by Orange Jabba's big lie. And that sounds pretty great for democracy, right? Well, sadly, the bill faces very dim prospects in the Senate, thanks to people like West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin and Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema. Today, voting rights activists and representatives of the Poor People's Campaign met with Speaker Nancy Pelosi to urge immediate action.
4: We're hurting. We're scared. We're scared. We've seen 9-11. We've seen January the 6th and I'm scared to death of, of the political insurrection I'm seeing in the states. This is not for show. My life, my children's lives and those
1: that are Texas residents are at stake. We have elected officials that are fighting to suppress my vote. What we're seeing is a backlash of we're being punished because people actually participated within this democracy.
8: In the filibuster it cannot be used as a modern day interposition and nullification.
1: Joining me now is the man you just saw, Bishop William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Um, and, and so I just want to give you an opportunity to tell us you met with speaker pelosi let me actually play uh, play what she said when she came out of the meeting cuz she also spoke at that rally uh, let's just play speaker pelosi real quick
0: i welcome the comments that you have made about policy and the connection between voting rights and policy progress for the people i do not uh, get involved in rules in terms of the senate and the rest But I do hope that we can make sure that we have success in saving our democracy.
1: Bishop Barber, just give us a sense of what you think came out of that meeting today, what commitments were made and what you think happens next.
8: Well, it was a huge meeting, and I deep respect more even more for the speaker because we had 21 people there. We, these were national denominational leaders, white and black and native and activists and poor and impacted people. And for an hour, she listened to us make the moral case to say, this is bigger than just black and white. This is about the future of this democracy. And we helped to lay out what we said is on January the 6th, we had a violent physical insurrection that was put down, but now we have a political policy insurrection. This is a moral crisis, constitutional crisis for the country. And Joy, we asked this question and she heard it. What does it profit America if you hold on to a regressive filibuster, if you pass a limited uh, infrastructure plan, but you lose the democracy, you lose the infrastructure the democracy, the voting right, and you lose... Uh, uh, the infrastructure of people's lives, like passing $15 in a union, a uh, $15 minimum wage, and a serious budget that lifts from the bottom. And she she could hear that. She understood that. And, the, and these pastors and bishops and others and these poor low wealth people made it clear you cannot separate the voting rights struggle from the economic justice struggle. You have to keep them together. And what we said to her, finally, Joy, is the House has to hold the line. Yes, we're for infrastructure. I'm for infrastructure for more than they have. The Poor People's Campaign thought it should be $10 trillion over 10 years. Yes, we're for the budget, but not without ending the filibuster, passing the For the People's Act, passing the Voting Rights Restoration Act. Those two have to be passed. One of them is not enough. Passing $15 living wage and, and the Build Back Better plan. So this House must say, we'll do all of it. But we're not going to just do part of it and leave the, democr- the infrastructure of our democracy shattered, broken, and destroyed. Uh,
1: and just to be clear, because the, the one that the you know the House seems to be focused on is the John Lewis Act, which has a lot of great things in it. It would restore some of the strength of the voting, voting, voting Rights Act. It's named for John Lewis. Hard to believe that Republicans would reject it with his name on it, but they don't seem to care. It would require some changes in election procedures to go through DOJ approval and put some preclearance back in. But that's for the future. That has nothing to do with the law that have already passed. What do you what would you like to see in the ideal world? You could make you could make the rules of what Democrats could do. What would they do in terms of the strategy in the House? Are you talking about holding up all the bills unless they get H.R. one? What do you think? What would you like to see them do to show that they actually mean that they want to pass these bills?
8: Well, at least do what the senators did, the Republican senators in Manchin did. They held up and said, we're not going to do certain things until you give us this infrastructure. So it ought to be the same thing in the House. You know, they at, at least uh, uh, they should say, listen, we will pass this, but we're not sending an infrastructure bill over by itself with no commitment from you to pass the uh, for, for the People's Act, which is the only way you deal with the bills that are being passed now. The, right. the Voting Rights Act registration is great. It's got to be done. But even in that, you, a state has to have had 15 incidents of voter suppression over the last 25 years adjudicated in order to be covered now under preclearance. So that's some states, but not all states. But these bills they're passing out, you can't stop those with the Voting Rights Act. You have to have the Affordable People's Act to assure voter access, get dark money out. They could put riders on these bills and say, listen, OK, we're going to give we, we will get the infrastructure. But when we do it, the rider is going to be on it. You, if your state is engaged in voter suppression, you don't get a dime. The bottom line is fight. This is what politics is about. They should not get everything and poor low wealth people and black people and brown people and they get nothing. They should not do that. We cannot give up the the infrastructure of the democracy. And that's why tomorrow we're in West Virginia, a moral motorcade on mansion from Madison to Charleston, led by white and black folk from 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 West Virginia. Remembering 100 years ago the Blair Mountain struggle when black and white miners stood together. And Willie Nelson called me today. Joe, I was on the road. Willie really said, hey, I'm in and I'm getting ready to call other country stars to be in because this is not just about black folk being attacked. This is about uh, the entire democracy being attacked. And how can you give infrastructure, lastly, that's going to go to developers and whatnot and not give $15 living wage to 32 million people, Joy, yeah. 32 million people who make for poor and low and 65 million poor and low wealth voters in this country. Yeah. At the very least, the ideal world is fight and to the House, hold the line. Hold the
1: line. And and a reminder that West Virginia is one of America's poorest states. So Manchin, it's in his interest to at least serve his own people, you'd think. Uh, Bishop William Barber, thank you very much for all that you do. Really appreciate you. Okay, tonight's absolute worst is still ahead as some robocall scammers get their comeuppance. But first, despite all the wailing and gnashing of teeth on the right, the Biden administration has accomplished something that's actually truly remarkable in Afghanistan with more than 88,000 evacuations so far. We'll have the latest next. Stay with us. With six days to go before the August 31st deadline to leave Afghanistan, the State Department gave its first full report on the number of Americans who have been safely evacuated and those who still remain.
7: Based on our analysis, starting on August 14, when our evacuation operations began, there was then a population of as many as 6,000 American citizens in Afghanistan who wanted to leave. Over the last 10 days, Roughly 4,500 of these Americans have been safely evacuated, along with immediate family members. Over the past 24 hours, we've been in direct contact with approximately 500 additional Americans and provided specific instructions on how to get to the airport safely.
1: While that means more work needs to be done in the coming days, let me just try to get ahead of the critics who will get all full of umbrage and bang on with their Saigon comparisons. Just for context. The total number of people airlifted out of Vietnam in 1975 was around 7,000. That was done while under the threat of being shot at and before Saigon fell. The Pentagon says that more than double that were evacuated from Afghanistan just yesterday alone for a total of nearly 88,000 people with no U.S. casualties. Most of this was done after the Taliban took control of Kabul. And for those who insist that that doesn't matter— that the whole enterprise is a failure because it has been messy at times. Well, welcome to war. That's what war looks like, especially one that we lost a long time ago. You don't want to mess? Maybe don't do wars. Joining me now, Richard Stengel, former Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, in the Obama administration, I, I've got a few questions for you, but I have to start by getting your take on some of this has been such posturing. I have to say pure political posturing, the response to what's happening in Kabul, including by some Democrats, too. You had two representatives on the House of Representatives, representatives Peter Meijer, um, who's a Republican and Seth Moulton, who is a Democrat, took themselves to Afghanistan, went to Kabul while people were trying to evacuate, used up resources that should have been used to get people out. They're supposedly full of outrage that we're not getting enough people out. Well, they took two seats. Your thoughts on that? Uh, The Pentagon press secretary, John Kirby, had a very, I thought, very diplomatic response to it, saying, hey, listen, we can't use those resources for all you politicians who want to come take pictures over here. Your thoughts, though?
7: Yes. I mean, Jerry, there's a lot of hypocrisy to go around. But I would say that what those two gentlemen did was Colossally irresponsible. I mean, the administration has asked uh, for no Congress people to visit Afghanistan during this crisis. Uh, one of the things that happens in in, the, in government, you're, they're called codels when congressional delegations come, and what happens is you have to use resources for the congressmen and women that would go to other people. So these two guys had American soldiers guarding them who instead of helping other Americans get out or uh, Afghani citizens who helped us before to get out, they're protecting these two congressmen. And then they take the seats when they fly back of people who would potentially come to the United States. I mean, there's grandstanding and then there's dangerous grandstanding and then there's colossal irresponsibility.
1: And then there's Kevin McCarthy. Um, though I'm not sure what he's good at. this whole thing that he's trying to do right now about being uh, trying to be Speaker of the House, then what he's good at. Here he is talking about um, what he would have done.
6: Why wouldn't we keep a base in that geographical region of the world? Why would we release it? Why, if there was not one casualty in the last 18 months and only 2,500 troops had to be there, we were securing what we need to do. I don't believe it was right to close the base. And you asked me a question. I would have kept it open.
1: You want to help him out? Uh, any ideas on, on to help answer poor Kevin's questions? Well, he
7: supported the Trump agreement, which was not even an agreement. It was a, it was a, you know, going out of business sale, uh, which they negotiated with the Taliban without negotiating with our allies, the Afghan government, and the, it was the Trump administration that set this time bomb off that has exploded now. And reduce the amount of soldiers there from 15,000 to 1,500. And of course, we do have soldiers in the region. We're not going to have them in Afghanistan because President Biden has decided, look, it's the right thing to do to get them out. Let's get them out in any way we can and help as many people as we can and have this, you know, sorry, sad chapter in our history be over.
1: I agree. Uh, Let's uh, talk about what can be done after the after Um, the World Bank has already taken some, some, some steps to freeze aid to Afghanistan, to maybe hold on to their money, to have some leverage over the way they behave. Here is their spokesman trying to convince the West that women in Afghanistan have nothing to fear from the Taliban. Take a listen to with our Richard Engel.
7: What would you say to women, Afghan women
1: who are terrified
7: they are our sisters. We must show them respect. They should not be frightened. The Taliban are humans and from this country. They have fought for their country. Women should be proud
1: of us, not scared. What, what do you even do with, with that?
7: Well, the, the first thing to know, as you do know, Joy, that 75 percent that of Afghans' operating budget comes from foreign assistance, mainly from in international institutions and Europeans. So one of the things that the Taliban are doing, and it and it may be honest or it may not be, I don't know. They want to have a more moderate line so that they don't lose all of this funding. They don't want to have to take over a government and then have absolutely no operating budget. So um, I I would I would wait and see. Uh, I hope they're telling the truth. Um, It's in their interest to be much more moderate and it's in their interest to uh, uh, to to try to uh, be uh, welcoming to women and in in a modern way. And we'll and we'll see if they have. I mean, I wrote a piece in The New York Times the other day about the social media campaign they have to to try to be. They want to be the legitimate government of Afghanistan and we'll have to see
1: if they do. Right. And then every there. Yeah, right. We assume that they are at least rational actors and wanted to not be a pariah state. We'll see what happens. But in the end, we're getting out of there. This war is done. Uh, Richard Stengel, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. And don't go anywhere. Tonight's absolute worst is up next as two of the most egregious conservative robocall scamsters face the music. And what a tune it is. Be right back. suppression doesn't just happen in plain sight. There's an entire vile underbelly of suppression efforts involving dirty tricks, deceptive flyers and pamphlets, fake officials with their fake official clipboards, all designed to keep certain people who usually don't look like them from voting. Well, sometimes those tricksters get caught. Enter Jacob Wall and Jack Berkman, two conservative operatives behind illegal robocalls that made false claims about mail voting. The calls, more than a 1,000 of them, targeted black voters in Detroit as well as in multiple states ahead of the 2020 election. Now, we're now going to play that call. But just to be clear, everything you're about to hear is falsity, false, false, false.
4: Hi, this is Tamika Taylor from Project 1599, the civil rights organization founded by Jack Berkman and Jacob Wool. Mail-in voting sounds great, But did you know that if you vote by mail, your personal information will be part of a public database that will be used by police departments to track down old warrants and be used by credit card companies to collect outstanding debts? The CDC is even pushing to use records for mail-in voting to track people for mandatory vaccines. Don't be finessed into giving your private information to the man. Stay safe and beware of vote by mail.
1: Wow. I hope Tamika Taylor got a healthy coin in exchange for her soul. The Federal Communications Commission proposed a whopping five point one million dollar fine against Wall and Berkman, making it the largest robocall fine ever proposed by the FCC for uh, violating the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. But this stunt these guys pulled, it's not exactly an original crime. Back in 1982, the Republican National Committee was charged with seeking to discourage Black people from voting through targeted mailings, making bogus claims about penalties for voting and for violating election laws, pretty much the Pony Express version of these robocalls. They also hired off-duty cops to patrol the polls in minority neighborhoods to try and intimidate Black voters. When they got caught, the RNC agreed to a consent decree that limited its so-called ballot security operations. But that decree expired in 2018. Kind of makes sense now, right? The Army for Trump poll watchers, the the poll workers who who were harassed, taunted and threatened because after nearly four decades, the Republican Party is now free to sabotage elections again without restraint. And these operatives behind the robocalls are just picking up where the RNC left off, which is why the long history of Republican trickery to intimidate voters is tonight's absolute worst. I mean, no wonder Republican, no Republicans voted for the John Lewis bill to restore the Voting Rights Act. They like love violating it. And that is tonight's readout. Be sure to join me tomorrow night when my guests include New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez.
0: Hey, it's Mel Robbins.